Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Good morning. Merry Christmas. We're in week two of a series called God. Is that you? And what we're really trying to answer throughout this series is simply this question. How do we know it's really God? I mean, how many of you have been in those places where you, you, just, you just wish, no, is God in this relationship or not? Or is God in this big life decision we're making right now? Is God the one that has paved the path for us to make this big purchase or this radical change in direction in our life? Is God really in this? Or it, when people come to you and they say, listen, I feel like God, I have a word for you from God. And you're like, is this just your feelings? Or is this really God? Have you ever been there? Or those moments when you, you, you're facing that big life choice and decision, and you know this, your ambitions and desires are shouting, and the still small voice of God seems much quieter. Is God really in this? Or is it your ambition and desire that is trumping what God wants? Or is God really in this, or was it the pizza you ate last night? You want to know if God is really in it. And last week, Pastor Keith helped us with the first teaching by helping us understand if God is really in something, it'll be about others. Meaning this, that God, with God's will in your life and through your life will always factor in the people that are in your life. It will consider their welfare It'll consider them also. I thought it was a brilliant teaching because in our individualistic North American culture, often we make our faith and our moments about us personally, but the ancient text of the scriptures certainly does factor in at a larger and important degree the corporate good. So if you're married, you know, God's will, and if God's really in it, it's going to factor in your spouse. It's going to factor in your children if you have children. It's going to factor in your family. It's going to factor in other people. It's going to factor in their welfare. It's not going to be independent of them. It's going to be a part of that. And we learned that last week. What a brilliant opening teaching. Here's the thing I want to land on today. I want to talk about if it's really God, you, knew, you can know that he will get it ready for us. You will see evidence that God has not only prepared you, but prepared it for you in advance that he is expecting you and he's prepared for you. So uh, let me illustrate, and I want to do a little role play with me. Are you prepared to play a role today? Okay, here's the role. Uh, you just need to imagine right now, it's Saturday morning. I don't know, what's an ungodly hour on Saturday morning? 7 a.m.? Are you up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning? Too many of you are up. Okay, how about 6 a.m.? Okay, so... Okay, there's still some of you up, but let's say it's 6 a.m. Saturday morning. Let's assume that you're at my house Saturday morning, 6 a.m., right outside my door with your finger on my doorbell. Let's just assume that. Let's also assume you're normal, okay? 
Let's, that may be a big assumption. I don't know you personally, but let's assume you're normal and you don't normally go around ringing people's doorbells at 6 a.m. Are we okay? You, you're ready to assume that role? So you're at my house at 6 a.m. You've got your finger on my doorbell. Do you touch it? Do you ring it? Oh, I don't think this is going to work. I, have a, I had really good sound effects. Oh, there it is. There it is. Are you going to ring the doorbell? Well, I think you're going to ring the If you're normal, you're going to ring it if you know I'm expecting you. If you know I'm expecting you and I'm prepared for you, you know that you can with confidence walk up and ring that doorbell. And when you ring the doorbell, I'm going to open the door. My hair is going to be combed. My teeth are going to be brushed. What? What? And, 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 you know, you're going to smell the coffee in the background, the bacon sizzling, the toast is ready to pop down. Listen, when I hear that doorbell, you know what I hear? A gentle ring, just a little ring, because I'm ready for you. I'm prepared to respond. I've been expecting you. I'm prepared to open the door and welcome you into that moment. Now, okay, you still with me? It's 7 a.m. Saturday, you're outside my door. You got your finger on the doorbell, but I'm not expecting you. Are you going to ring it? Are you going to press that? I mean, remember, you're normal. You're normal. Listen, if you do, there's probably a compelling reason you're going to do it. But I'm going to tell you this. At 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning, if you ring my doorbell, it's going to sound like this. To me. Because I'm sleeping. That's going to be jarring. It's going to be jarring and disturbing to me because I wasn't prepared for you. I didn't expect you. You showed up unexpected and I was unprepared. Here's what you're doing though. When, 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 when I'm expecting you, I'm ready to welcome you into that moment and you're ready to move into that moment. You're ready to move into that space. When I'm not expecting you, you're trying to drag me into your moment. You're jarring me out of my will and trying to get me into your will. And your will is you want breakfast. <laughs> and you want it when you want it, how you want it. And all of a sudden, you jarred me out of my sleep and slumber to get into your will. Now, if I'm a good guy, I'm probably going to pretend like I was expecting you, right? My hair is going to be bedhead, though. I'm going to be dressed in my pajamas. I'm going to say, yeah, come on in. Uh, uh, Shelly, we got to do something here. See, when it comes to the will of God, there's an aspect of understanding that you can determine whether God's really in something. If you can see evident that, evidence that he's been preparing this. He's been preparing it for you, and he's preparing you for it. So you can actually relax about God's will and be confident in God's will. Because you see his fingers at work throughout whatever this major decision of life is. In fact, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We're going to spend the entire time actually in Luke chapter 3. And then to prepare for this, I'm going to have Pastor Keith read a portion of scripture, but not from snowy Toronto. Instead, from the warm Middle East, on the banks of the Jordan River, he recorded this in May for us today. Let's watch the screens. Well, I'm at a site that uh, helps us understand God likes to plan ahead. 
Remember Adam and Eve? He said there's going to be one that will come that will, will crush the serpent's head. Uh, raised up Abraham. A nation's going to be blessing the whole world because someone's going to come through them. Psalmist David made messianic prophecies. And then you uh, have prophets that identify where Jesus will be born. And then just before Jesus arrives on the scene of public ministry, you have one the Old Testament identifies as one like Elijah. And it's John the Baptist that arrives on the scene, comes by the Jordan River, which was closed for uh, a number of years due to the minefields around. Well, uh, John the Baptist came into a political minefield, ended up being beheaded, but not before he had the opportunity to uh, say, here comes Jesus. You know, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so God's always preparing well ahead of time for us. And uh, here's what Luke 3 says about John the Baptist. He went into all the country around the Jordan, speaking of the Jordan River that's behind me here, uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet. So, you know, here's centuries before, Isaiah the prophet speaking about how John the Baptist would come on the scene in preparation for Jesus coming on the scene. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. That's Jesus. So this time of year, we're preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And it's this with expectant hearts, we're making room for joy in our hearts for what God has done for every human being on the planet. Uh, he's no respecter of persons, not one person more important than the other. Every human being has access to this incredible grace because of what Jesus has done. But here's what is even understood as from chapter 3 of the book of Luke, as Pastor Keith just read some of the verses 3 and 4 and 5 in that, in that great chapter, is really hearkening back to centuries before when the prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be born. And that John the Baptist, where there would be someone that would be preparing the way for Jesus. And John's ministry was preparatory to the Messiah being introduced to that, that nation in the Middle East that would change this world. And here I want you to see, because we're going to actually rewind and start at the very beginning of Luke chapter 3. Because I want you to see that when it comes to understanding if God is really in something, you're going to see evidence you're going to see evidence of him being involved in preparing for what he is revealing. So he, let's go back to verse 1. He starts out, this chapter starts, and uh, actually we're going way back. Uh, verse 1. Yes. Okay, so now this is the way Luke starts this. And this tells you a lot about Luke, who we're going to be journeying with over this next year. It starts out and it says this. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was a governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Eutria and Trichonite. 
Nitus, I, you know, if you say them fast enough, nobody notices. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. It's very interesting. Lysanias, if you, in that small little kingdom called Abilene that was in the region of Judea at that time, is fascinating. It even gets mentioned here. Uh, Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came from John. This is John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Now, these opening verses are fascinating to me because John is, or Luke is doing something very interesting here. He's listing everyone that's in power in that moment in time. Everyone that had political influence, uh, uh, that had sort of uh, a power, secular power, and everyone that had sacred power. All of those that were in the religious orders, that were in the places of significance, they were elite, they were the ones who were in the positions of power. And it's interesting, Luke, as we journey with him over this coming year, one of the things I love about Luke, and if you've been around uh, for any length of time at this church and you've heard either Dr. Van speak about this or Pastor Keith in the past, you'll know this. Luke is very interesting because he mentions a lot of people nobody else mentions in the Bible. He mentions a lot of people that other gospels never mention. He has a way of, he's not only chronicling the moment in time that the word of the Lord came through, the, for, through John the Baptist. He's also contrasting the way it came. But he's also, he's including people in the narrative that might get missed, but that are included historically. Now, I love this because Luke is believed to have been a Gentile. Bit of an outsider himself. And he includes people throughout, his, throughout that whole gospel that... Don't get mentioned in other Gospels. You're in for a great treat over this coming year as we journey with Luke. And we learned and unearthed different truths and insights that will come by the narrative of these people's lives being included in the story. Now, what's significant about this is, is that when the word of the Lord came, as John uh, chapter 1 talks about the word became flesh, it wasn't declared through the obvious places where it would be, through the religious leaders, through the political powers, it came from a locust-eating, rag-wearing hermit in the desert, John the Baptist. This tells you something about how you can discern whether God's in something or not. If God's in it, you can see it in the fine print. You'll always see evidence of him at work if it's his will in the fine print. This shouldn't be surprising to people who know Jesus and his kingdom and what his kingdom would be like. Jesus often used the weak to confound the, the strong. He often used the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. His is an upside-down kingdom, and Luke is declaring right from the beginning, you know God's really in this. I'll tell you why. Because God's coming through an unlikely path in an unlikely manner. So that who's going to get the glory for all of this? God will. Friends, if God's really in something in your life you're trying to discern his will, he'll be in the fine print. If relationally you have to lie to somehow get that person, God's not. God's not in that. If financially you have to cheat, cheat here, cheat there, cheat here to get ahead there and here. God's not, not, not really in that. 
If in your career path, in order to get that promotion, you got to stomp all over people, you can already know that. that the God's in the fine details. He's in the fine print. If he's really in that, if he's really in that opportunity, you're not going to have to treat people in a way that is different from his kingdom. It will be in line with his kingdom. You, in other words, you don't have to make it happen. You can let God orchestrate what his will is. So he goes on to say, though, just these opening verses help us understand a little bit that God is going to be in the fine print if God's really in it. But it's interesting, uh, Pastor Keith read from the text that the portion in verse 4 and verse 5 where the prophet Isaiah foretold about John's ministry. And he said this, Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness. And this is what he said, prepare the way, preparation, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places will be made smooth. Now, what does this all mean? What did Isaiah mean? And what does it mean for John to be preparing the way for God and God's will to be accomplished in that era, in that moment? Well, you got to understand, in, in those days, nobody built roads. You didn't build roads in those days. In those days, I mean, roads were more like these kind of uh, earth paths that had been beaten down and baked by the sun. And it was kind of two ruts in the road where the wagons had gone consistently and, and the animals had followed or people walked from village to town and they found a way to go. And, and you know, if you came across a boulder, you just went around the boulder. So a lot of the roads went like this. They weren't straight. They went around the objects and obstacles in their path because nobody removed them. You didn't have equipment. You didn't have money to do that. The only one who built roads were kings. Kings built roads. See, kings didn't wake up one day and say, listen, we're going to travel over there. Let's go. They need to make sure that the roads, because those roads weren't big enough to uh, actually help contain their entourage that they would take with them. They, were, they weren't big enough. They weren't straight enough. And so kings, you can look at the historically, it was fascinating. They, when they traveled, when they planned to travel, it was a big deal. And they would send out in advance to the villages and the towns in which they were going. They would call them heralds and engineers. A herald was someone who brought good news. And a herald would go into these villages and towns and say, listen, I got some good news for you. The good news is you're about to be honored. Why? The king is going to be visiting. And in turn, the herald would conscript all of the local people to work and with the engineers. And the de declaration was simply this, be this, prepare the king's highway. So you might not enjoy it, but you would be conscripted and you'd be there building a straight highway, removing the boulders, widening the roads, making them smooth and as straight as possible so that the king and all of his entourage and all the people that would be traveling with him could get to your location and bless you with his presence. I mean, that's the way it would happen. What's interesting in the prophet Isaiah's words is he doesn't say about removing a boulder or filling a little gully. Because in ancient cultures, if you came across a boulder, you just went around it. If you get in a gully, you took your wagon down into the gully and found a way out of it. But in the prophet Isaiah said, prepare the way that the king is coming. And he says, don't, don't remove boulders. He says, level the mountains. 
He doesn't say, fill a gully, bridge a gully. He says, fill the valley. Make straight the path, enlarge the road, make smooth the path. What kind of king gets that type of treatment? I mean, who does this king think he is? Well, John is talking about not just anyone, and we know this. Boy, this is critically important when we go into a Christmas season where maybe perhaps, as Margaret was leading us today, perhaps we could be coming to take a gaze at Jesus because it's the wonder of this season. And we might forget to worship. Why? Because he's the ultimate king. Again, you can see the fingerprints and the fine details and the fine print of the kingdom of God. Jesus is born among animals in a humble family, in a humble region. He lives and he grows there. What good could come from that region? Uh, God's kingdom seems so upside down, but make no mistake about it, friends. Just like John was a powerful man that, that Jesus likened to as greater than any prophet that came before him. Don't mistake Jesus' love and friendship with you, his tender, loving care. Don't mistake that you're not in the presence of sheer greatness. The ultimate power of the universe, the Son of God, the Chosen One, the Messiah, the One who has come to prepare the way for us. See, here's the truth. The King came and built a road for you. What a humble servant that he would leave his home in heaven because, you know, we were trying to build all these walls to try to get back to the garden, back to the beginning, back to God, our creator. But all of our roads were kind of filled with obstacles and barriers and disconnects, and they never kind of made it back. And so he humbled himself and left his home in heaven. And he prepared a road so that we could walk in the king's road, that we would be able to find our ways back to him. See, I think on our good days, we can feel this. And we even kind of know it on our good days, that God's prepared good things for us. The prophet Jeremiah, a much quoted verse, and he's, saying, he's declaring it to the people of God in the Old Testament. But I know many of us lean back in those old covenants, and we hear these words, and they bring encouragement to us today. When the prophet of Jeremiah says, I know what I'm doing, and he's speaking on behalf of God. I have it all planned out Plans to take care of you, not to abandon you. Plans to give you the future and give you a hope. And friends, that's a fridge magnet moment. We put it on, uh, we put it on our screensavers. It's a promise given to the Israelites back in those ancient days by the prophet Jeremiah. But why does it resonate with us in 2019? Because it has something of his fingerprints of the kingdom on it even today for us. Maybe it's more the Apostle Paul in, in, in uh, Ephesians 2.10 where he says this, for we are God's masterpiece. Isn't that beautiful? Every human being is one of God's masterpieces. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. And listen to this. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So in other words, the pages of scripture would say this, God has prepared a road for you. God has a plan for you. God has a will for your life. He's prepared a way for you. 
Have we prepared room for him? How do we do that? How do we enlarge the road of faith in our lives so that we're more attuned to hear his still small voice? That we don't need the hockey horn going off. We're listening and we hear him and we know him. Well, John goes on to talk about this. In verse 7, John says this. John says, when the crowds came to John for baptism. Now, before you read ahead, I want you to know this crowd is amiable. These people want to see John. Some of them suspect he's the Messiah. They can't wait to interact with John. They're excited to be there, and he's baptizing. This is a brand new thing. It's fascinating what's going on. So they want to do this, but they all arrive. Remember, goodwill, they're excited. They're not against John. How does John start his introduction? You know, a little hook. Does he do it with a little sound effects? No. He says this. Uh, John, 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 John. Uh, I was talking to someone last night as I was teaching this text, and they were saying the next day, uh, like, or last night they said, oh, my mom used this term all the time to describe us kids, you brood of vipers. <laughs> he says, you brood of snakes. You, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? What's John talking about there? Derek Kidner, a great commentarian, he speaks about this little term, and he says, John understands his Bible well. He understands the pages of Scripture. He understands the Torah because he takes us right back to where the trouble all began. Our trouble all began with a snake. Our trouble began in that garden with a snake. And we became then, in the words of Kidner, the children of the serpent. And the children of the serpent are the people who believed the lie. Do you know what the lie was? Do you remember what the serpent said to Adam and Eve? Did, did the serpent say, disobey God? No. Far more cunning, far more subtle, far more deceptive than that. In fact, if you're paraphrasing it, and the commentator does, he says this, basically the paraphrase of what the serpent said to our first ancestors was this, you can't trust God to have your best interests in mind. Adam, Eve, God's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. He, he's holding out on you. And ever since then, deep inside all of our hearts, that lie has laid dormant inside of us. That lie has been there. See, the real problem in discerning God's will is often found in the fact that we hold on to that lie. Now, on our good days, like I said, when we're Jeremiah 29, 11 or Ephesians 2, 10, we don't believe that lie. But when the circumstances of life begin to stack up against us, we kind of do. We begin to believe that lie. But John goes on and he talks about how do you remove the obstacles? You know, one of my favorite verses when someone's trying to discern God's will, I've often quoted the proverb, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and many of you have heard it, and I love the way it reads, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, acknowledge him in all your ways, your paths. And it says, he will direct your path. But the Hebrew word for direct actually means he will remove the obstacles in your path. Isn't that interesting? He'll remove the obstacles in your path. 
Well, he goes on to talk about some of the obstacles and how to have them removed in our lot, in our lot from our lives. Verse eight says this: Prove the way, prove by the way you live that you have. Can you say that word with me? Yeah, fun word, fun word, isn't it? Repented of your sins and turned to God. What's John saying? What John is really advocating that if we want to know whether God's in something, and we want to be in on what God wants in our lives, we need to start with a renovated heart. That there needs to be a renovation experience that happens in our lives. That, that our hearts have this lie dormant inside of it. The lie of the serpent. The lie that you can't trust God. This, our heart is an incredibly deceptive area of our lives. We can convince ourselves to do things we know are wrong and somehow justify it beautifully by our hearts, can't we? We can do those things. It's, incredibly, it's incredible how deceptive our hearts can be. We need to have our hearts made straight. The road of our heart enlarged for Jesus, the King. And the way we do it, John says, is to repent. And this was his message over and over. Now, what is repentance? In verses 10 to 14, I won't read it, John describes what repentance looks like. And he says this, repentance looks like this. If you've got two shirts, you give one to someone else who needs it. If you have food, share it. If, if, and he talks to tax collectors, if you're cheating people, stop it. He says this, he mentions soldiers in the text, but the Greek word actually kind of means policemen. If you're blackmailing or strong-arming people, don't do it anymore. What John is saying is fascinating. He's saying this, you know you have a repentant heart when you begin to be more honest and generous in life. You're more honest and you're more generous in life. That's kind of, but it's interesting. That's not re what repentance is. That's the fruit of repentance. See, repentance is a little Greek word. It doesn't mean change in behavior. Sometimes, it, maybe even I probably taught this over the years because there's an aspect of when we truly repent, there's a change in our behavior. But, but it doesn't mean a change in behavior. Repentance means a change in your heart. And when your heart changes, your behaviors will change. See, religion wants your behavior to change before your heart. And that's why it's such a burden for a lot of people. And what religion becomes is a list of do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts. And you rigorously try, 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 try. But it's really hard to do if you haven't had a heart change. So when I got married 26 years ago, see better this time, I got it. 26 years ago, there are things because I'm married now, there are things I don't do that I may want to do. There are things that I do regularly that I don't want to do. But you know, there's one thing to be doing it out of a sense of duty. I could say to Shelly, you know, Shelly, you know, I know as your husband that I shouldn't do these things and so I will not do them. And I should be doing these things so I will do them because why? I am dutiful. You know, Shelly's not going to be impressed. I'm going to tell you this right now. As much as she would like me to be doing these things and not doing these things, it's not coming from a heart of love. When you're motivated for love, when you love someone, and there's true motivation of love, it doesn't mean you do things perfectly. You don't. 
But what it does mean is the fuel for you to not do things or to do things doesn't make it so heavy that it's just duty and grinding it out. There's love there. A change in heart is critical. A renovated heart is critical. Not for us just to embrace God's will, but to be able to live his will. It's critical that we have a transformation in our hearts. I like what Tim Keller says about this. He says, if you don't see generosity, honesty, humility, gentleness, faithfulness, love, joy, peace, patience, growing in your life, you haven't repented. You haven't repented. It's not a checklist. These are things that naturally grow when our hearts are predisposed towards God. Not perfectly grow. You're not perfect in those things, but they're growing in your life. There's evidence of that happening in your life. So John goes on to say this in verse 9. You know, remember, he's winning friends and influencing them here. You brood of vipers. He says this, even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the tree. And there's where we get to the heart of things, to the renovated heart. See, if you could imagine that your heart has a root system, every one of our hearts does. We have a root system. And it's been planted in something. And for some of us, it was planted in religion. And that's why, you know, we dutifully do things. But our love for Jesus, and even when we sing songs of worship and stuff like that, nothing ignites in our hearts. Why? Because we're kind of in the dutiful thing. We're checking check boxes. And listen, I'm not being hard on you. I'm just saying that's poor soil. That soil will never bear great fruit. That soil is like a noose around your necks. That's why I left church years ago. That's why I left religion years ago. Because I had enough of me trying and failing. Do you ever get tired of failing? Man, sometimes I get so tired of failing. Because I just try, try, and then, you know, when I failed, I just try harder. You know how that worked? I'd fail again. And then I'd, I'd double down on the guilt, and I'd try harder. See, you got to be careful where your tr- roots are planted. This is a real truth, this next slide here. It, we all have some bad roots. Every one of us does. Every one of us has bad roots in areas of our life. It might be a wound from our childhood. It may be the way we were raised. It may be our mindset and the way we view the world. Maybe we get so involved in Twitter and we're so right-wing or so left-wing that we, you know, I, I, I do, and I often, I'll say this on occasion, friends, you need to remember in the pages of Scripture, neither the extreme right or the extreme life left like Jesus. Neither of them did. I'm just saying. But, but you could can, you can get polarized in your own thinking, your own mindset, and you get, this, you get these, all these toxic roots connected to you, and it's bearing some bad fruit. And here's what we try to do often in this world. We want to change the fruit without changing the roots. It's like in a marriage relationship. We want to change the fruit. We want to love each other. We want things to go better. We want this connection to be better. But we're not prepared to change some of those roots that give life to that temper in us, that give life to that coldness inside of us, that give life to that being able to keep records of wrongs against those that we love. You know, there's a reason why that root is in us. And John is saying this, we need the acts of God to sever that root because the root of our hearts need for a truly renovated heart need to be found in the grace of God. Very different approach. 
See, I think when it comes to discerning God's will in our life and knowing whether he's in it, I'd ask you simply this, whose path are you on? If you're like me, here was the biggest problem with me growing up in the church. See, I had all these paths for my life that I wanted. And I was prepared to say, God, you just come down this path and I'll bow and I'll get the palm branches out and I'll worship you. But just come down this path because I want her or I want this. And that's not the way it works though. He's prepared the king's road. And his invitation is, and he does it so lovingly. He doesn't, it's not me, him demanding of, of me, it's him drawing me and he's saying, Jonathan, you know, that's a cute little path. But I, I want you on the king's path. Come and bow to me here. Be willing to say, thy will be done. Not your will. A renovated heart allows us to come to a place where we want his will over ours. Let's, let's keep moving along. Because John doesn't stop there. Here's the beautiful thing. If you have that renovated heart, you can relax. You can relax then. Because the heavy lifting has been done by someone else other than you for the things that God has planned for your life in advance for you to do. John says this to everyone. Have you noticed this? If you've ever read about the John the Baptist in Scripture, I talked about it two or three weeks ago in a message on spiritual health. John says over and over, be baptized. And everyone that came to that crowd that was Jewish, they understood what baptism was. Baptism was something Gentiles did. Gentiles would be baptized in order to become Jews. They would take a bath in order to become a Jew. And it was symbolic. It was symbolizing that they were immoral people and they were washing in order to be able to walk into and become a Jew. But Jews weren't baptized. They weren't baptized then. But John comes along and he says, everyone in the water. Everyone in the water. Everyone's got to get in the water. This is a little shocking. Me too. When do you take a bath, friends? In those moments when maybe you realize that I'm no longer presentable. Or when you, you're just like, man, I stink. I, I, I need, and there's something, John was saying in this baptism, this baptism was an indication that you weren't presentable and that you needed help. And what was so different is Gentiles would baptize themselves. Nobody baptized them. This was a solo act. But in this moment, John's saying, no, 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 no. You need to be baptized by the hand of another. You need to be baptized by the hand of another. In other words, it's going to take more than you. And I want you to understand, this is the most relaxing, best news I ever heard as a follower of Jesus. Because all of a sudden I realized, oh wait, it's not me doing the heavy lifting. The one who baptizes me is doing the heavy lifting. And I don't mean the pastor who might do it symbolically here. I mean Jesus. In fact, in verse 15, John says this, he says, everyone was eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. So they've come, they're, they're ready to, they're expecting. And John answered their questions by saying, listen, I baptize you with water. But someone is coming soon who's greater than I. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. You know, an interesting thing in that culture at that day and age, rabbis would often have servants 
or even sometimes slaves in that culture. And usually in rabbinic law, you were not allowed to last your slave to even untie your sandals. It was so beneath even a slave to do. And John's saying, I'm even lower than that. The gap between me and the guy that's coming, it's not even close. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Friends, this is great news. It's great news because you know now when it comes to salvation, you don't have to earn it. You have to receive it. In other words, you can do nothing. You can do nothing to make God love you more than he loves you right now. You can do nothing that will now earn your way to get his grace in your life. No, you, only, you can only receive it. And you get it by asking for it. It's so beautiful, but it's so humbling. You know how humbling it is to have to ask somebody for something? You'd rather receive it just as a gift, right? Like, I'd rather just somebody give me something than to me have to go and say, you know, uh, um, you know uh, could, could I... Uh... Humility opens the pathway to God. Pride closes the pathway to God. The humble are in, and the proud... They're out. They're out in Jesus' kingdom. I'm going to invite our communion servers, those who will be serving us in a moment, just to prepare themselves. We're almost done here. So friends, when it comes to understanding if God is really in something, we need a renovated heart experience that's rooted in love for God. And we also need to relax and recognize that Jesus is doing the heavy lifting. You can see God at work in the fine print in the areas of life where you're making these big decisions. Here's the last one. You need to remain expectant. Remain expectant. You know, sometimes God uses, as we saw in the opening chapters, opening verses of this chapter, someone or something very insignificant. It's really quiet. Uh, His will gets revealed in our lives in ways maybe we didn't particularly experience or know. We didn't even see it coming. What we all want, though, is I think what we see at the end of this chapter. At the end of this chapter, John baptizes his cousin Jesus in water. And do you remember the story? If you do, all of a sudden, a voice from heaven, a voice from heaven shouts, This is my son! in whom I'm well pleased, and a, and, a, and a dove descends from heaven. And I think when we want to see the will of God in our lives, that's what we want to hear. I want to know that there's no mistaking this is God's will. This person I should be in a relationship with. This is the business decision I should make. This is how we should raise our kids. I want to know like a big horn that God is in this moment. Friends, that's the end of the story. That's almost like hindsight. God has been preparing for Jesus' arrival for centuries. In a few minutes, our worship team is going to come up here, and they're going to show us Jesus in every book of the Old Testament leading up to the Gospels and how God knit this together over the centuries. Friends, this is why a renovated heart is so important. His sheep know his voice. And you need to be in step with him. So when he speaks, you can hear him speak. See, I I was thinking of this 
this last, or two weeks ago, I had a, a training time with some of our elders in our church, and they're going to be available to pray with you at the end of this gathering with our prayer team. And one of the elders, uh, his name's Dunley Bowes. I don't even know if Dunley's in this service or which one he'll be in. But he came up to me after our training time and he put his arm around me. And he's kind of, if you know Dunley, he's a very happy-go-lucky man. I just, it was, he was laughing with me and he said, you know, I remember when you first came here and I couldn't figure you out. And I think that could be good or that could be very bad, right? And he was hearkening back to when I first came back in the year 2000. So I, I, for some of you who are new here, I came and I left for a while. I just lost my way. And then I came back. <laughs> but but I, w- I, I came in the year 2000. I said, what, what do you mean you couldn't figure me out? He said, well, he said, well, I was on the board at the time. And Pastor Keith was talking about you. And he said, here you were in Nova Scotia. And, you know, you had a young family. You barely had any income. You were living in government housing. And we offered you a full-time job with benefits, and you said no. Not once. A number of times you said no. And he said, he said I just couldn't get over it. I don't know why you didn't come right away. I, I never understood that. He said, I've laughed about that many times over the years. And in that moment, it's, I slipped right back in my 20-year-old self. I remember being 20-something, I forget, in my late 20s, and I remember I heard a bell. That was the wrong bell. I heard that bell. And it was Keith Smith calling me from our teaching pastor here. I never knew who Keith was. I had no clue. I had heard of him, but I'd never known him. And I remember wrestling with Shelly. I can remember we had two little kids. Like one wasn't even moving, you know, it was just sitting there. You know that stage. When you just say, you're taking up space right now, kid. <laughs> Get productive. Do something. <laughs> and we had one that was walking and talking. And I, I was planting this church, and I, I just wanted what God's will was. I couldn't figure it out. It took me a year of Pete Keith being so patient with me to discern that maybe God's will was to come here. Now, what Dunley was saying was interesting. Because, honestly, the fact that it was meant financial security to come to Aging Court at that time because Aging Court Pentecostal Church was a, just a strong, vibrant church in our movement. But it meant nothing to me. You know, money's never been a motivating factor. I've never made a decision because of money. It just doesn't motivate me one way or the other. Security didn't motivate me. People talked to me about security. I remember when I confided in someone else and they said, you don't even know what an RSP is. You should go. <laughs> Because I was just a kid, just planting a church, just doing my best. But here's the thing, though. Money and security didn't motivate me, but what did was significance. I wanted to live a life of significance. I wanted to help change people's lives. I didn't want to be a part of just a big cog in a system or some part of bureaucracy. I wanted nothing to do with that. I wanted to make a difference. And on the surface, friends, you might be saying to yourself, well, I think of money when I'm making a big decision. I think of security. I want you to know, me thinking of significance was as toxic as you thinking of money as security too. My need to be significant is rooted in probably some brokenness and all kinds of things. Idealism, all kinds of things. 
But if any of those things are primary in discerning God's will, whether it's money, security, or even significance, what I'm really saying is, God, get on my path. Give me what I need. Give me what I want. And then I'll do what you want. And I not come to the place of surrender where I say, God, no matter what you want, I want what you want. Let's pray. Father, wanting what you want is so hard. God, we, we want it when it lines completely up with our path. But, and friends, if this is you, this is a real moment of honesty with you and God. And so just jump in on my prayer in this moment. God, I admit, I don't often want what you want. I want you to want what I want. And God, right now in this moment, I humble myself. God, I pray, Lord, that you would be at work renovating my heart right now. God, that I would love what you love. I'd want what you want. I'd want what you design me to need, even. And God, I'm going to trust not in the lie of the serpent, that you don't have my best in mind, but I'm going to trust that you do have my best in mind. And God, your will for my life will factor in the people in my life also, God. They matter to you. And I say today, and I remind myself, they matter to me. And God, above them and above me is you. You are the ultimate king. And if this is you, you go ahead and pray this with me. I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. But still, you call me friend. I've been adopted into your family. So God, would you just forgive me? Would you help me to give me eyes to see you in the fine print? To see, God, you and the little motives and things that are going on in life. That I would see your evidence of your kingdom in the decisions of my life and the will for my life. And God, I pray that as my heart is re renovated and I just invite your Holy Spirit to do that work inside of me today. I just surrender to you in this moment. God, give me that relaxed confidence that when the bell rings, I'm ready to step into it. God, when the bell rings, I'm ready to step up because I'm confident that you've prepared that relationship, you prepared that next job, you prepared that next step in advance for me. So God, I'm going to trust you with the details. I'm going to stop trying to manipulate and I surrender to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.